Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week, we're joined by our friend Ryan. He was previously here for the season one episode, Cueless, which we all liked way less than we remembered. <laughs> welcome, Ryan. Hey, I'm happy to be back. And for an episode, I liked a lot more than <laughs> I liked Cueless. <laughs> we're happy to have you as well. Was there a specific reason you picked this episode to join? I know I didn't prompt you um, with that question, but <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't have that's to answer fine. it if I... you don't want to. I picked it for uh, for for two reasons really. One, uh, like uh, Tessa, I also enjoy the Maquis as a uh, running through line between TNG, DS9, and Voyager. Right. Um, and so this is a Maquis related episode. But even more importantly, it's a Miles O'Brien episode, and O'Brien is my favorite DS9 character. And so anytime I get to talk about Miles O'Brien and he gets the spotlight. Uh, it's it's an episode I'm I'm predisposed to enjoy. <laughs> Fair. What do you think it is about Miles that you enjoy so much? Like, why is he your favorite? Yeah. So because he's not a uh, like a captain or anything, you know, he doesn't necessarily feel the need to um, subvert his own personal takes and personal opinions to those of Starfleet. Um, so he feels to me a little bit more well-rounded. He's like a little bit. You know, straddles the line between being, you know, he's not like a Jordi LaForge genius engineer. Like he's very competent, but he also kind of feels like an everyman. He's he feels a little bit more working class than, you know, a lot of the other next generation characters. And I think that sort of fits with the vibe of DS9 overall. Yeah, no, that that makes that makes perfect sense. And that tracks and like it's it's almost as if Miles is kind of the most human <laughs> of the, like main cast and like human characters especially like in the context of you know especially early tng where o'brien kind of was was kind of first introduced as like a basically an extra um you know the, the sense of like the evolved 24th century humans and it's like miles you're like no i recognize that guy like that's that's a guy i work with that's a guy that like i commute with that's my neighbor that's me right so mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and especially when you have, you know, Bashir and you have, um, you know, the other, the other DS9 characters have more, I think, more complicated backstories. You know, we get a bit more about Miles in this episode, but, you know, like I said, I, I think there's a bit of self-identification in there for me as well. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, too, and I think it doesn't, like, explore, and this episode kind of touches on it, and I don't think Star Trek generally explores this necessarily to the same kind of depth and and care that it would now but the idea of miles being a veteran and how his influences in the cardassian border wars and you know what he saw at set like three that's referenced in this episode how basically it allows the the show allows him to be a space racist a little bit (laughs) right and like which is it's just un uncommon in like starfleet officers right because they're supposed to be these these perfect kind of paragons right the idea of how his experiences in the war kind of shaped him and the threads of like you know ptsd and 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 things like that that can come through and kind of inform who he is and he's allowed to be like we said human i think is 
is really unique in an, in Star Trek, at least this era of Star Trek for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yeah. I I mean, this is a lot pretty deep into the episode, but I enjoy the way the this episode in particular handles his feelings about Cardassians and just like yeah. straight up labels it as, you know, space racism. Um, but, you know, doesn't make Miles a less likable character for it overall. Like you can sort of understand his point of view. And, you know, I feel like it's it's more deeply rooted in a sort of, you know, it feels to me more like a um, an ethnocentric point of view yeah. rather than a like yeah. systemic racism point of view you know because it's more like a you know uh, like you know my grandfather or whatever like fought in the war against the germans and so he you know he doesn't eat sauerkraut you know what i mean like it's that kind of thing yeah. more than it's a like subjugation kind of thing that came up on Mad Men recently in one of the episodes where that you guys were covering on still great bob where like roger was really upset that they were doing they were considering doing business with Honda because he had fought in the mm-hmm. war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's also really interesting about this episode, kind of just to, to pivot and, and get into it more, is this was the first episode of Star Trek that aired after Star Trek The Next Generation ended. So Next Gen had their their big two-part finale, their TV movie, their all good things. And then I don't remember, it was within a couple days or the next week. I can't remember how the dates lined up. But this was the first episode that aired after TNG ended. That's actually... So, that's, interesting, interesting little distinction it's there. It's really amusing to me, that fact, because it's like our TNG group has this like nice ending and then... <laughs> Miles, who left, has this like trial that he has to suffer through. So I think that's funny since he was <laughs> yeah. previously uh, on the Enterprise. And he <clears throat> is in the TNG finale in one of the, the temporalities. Oh, right. Um, I have only seen it once. I should rewatch that. It's basically a, like a Christmas carol with Picard as Scrooge. Right. Yeah, it's really great. Um, it's also funny that they mentioned the epi- the Enterprise in this episode as moving, and that was a reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was them like kind of tipping their their cap, as it were. Okay. So, but there was it was still out there, and it was still adventuring, and generations coming to a theater near you very soon. <laughs> so I actually remembered this episode of Deep Space Nine. Um, I kind of not specific- is that because M- Miles had his shirt off in it. <laughs> Sorry, I should make light of that scene. I apologize. No, and I'll get to that later. But like, before I remembered specifically why Miles had his shirt off, I texted Matt earlier in the week, and I was like, the thumbnail is Miles with his shirt off. And then I was watching the episode, (laughs) and I'm like, oh, it's definitely not sexy here. (laughs) Uh, So I I really enjoy the the way this episode opens with a you know not in uniform casual dress. Um, you know, vaguely pirate-looking shirt. Uh, <laughs> Miles annoying the hell out of everybody as he's trying to leave, uh, leave the station for vacation uh, with his wife. And and again, immediately I was like, oh yeah, I'm glad I took this episode <laughs> because that is exactly how I am before I take off work for like a week or go on vacation. And I'm like, here's the list of things you guys need to keep an eye on while I'm out of the office. And like, you know, if something comes up. Like, I trust you guys to make the right call. Like, you can call me if you really need me, but I think everything should be fine. To the point where people are like, please just leave. Just just go. <laughs> and so... He doesn't seem like he knows how to take a vacation. <clears throat> definitely not. 
and so I think starting the episode in such a humorous place, I feel like makes it that much more shocking when we get into his capture and trial and everything. Like it goes from like very lighthearted at the beginning and he's running into somebody he used to serve with and we're getting a little bit of backstory here. And then, you know, uh, we see him and Keiko on the runabout on their way and like it's very lighthearted and fun and then it comes to a grinding halt right i didn't realize and we mentioned this line when we talked about the maquis um a few weeks ago i guess it must have been more than that now they didn't know that they were they hadn't when they had the line in the maquis part two where goldicott says on cardassia the verdict is known before the trial begins and it's always the same they didn't have a plan for this episode yet when they wrote that they actually no was inspired by that line yeah and i thought that was really awesome because i really love this episode a lot and it's just fun that like it's only like four episodes later so it's just makes me happy that they like didn't wait to see like the reception to that the maquis episode to like continue it um and, and then you know right before you know uh miles and keiko are having a little she's a little miffed at him that he brought all these technical yes, manuals technical and things manuals. To that's such like a starfleet engineer move because yeah. like even like back in the original series and i remember that the trouble with tribbles when um there's the bar fight and kurt confines scotty to quarters he's like oh great i can catch up on my technical journals it's just like <laughs> maybe that should be my, my most star trek thing <laughs> um and, and like then the choice and this is i don't i don't hold miles accountable for this so much as the writing team but like yeah using you mean you the know, character Japanese doesn't make their music. own decisions i didn't know that's how it worked <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just it's just interesting given miles history of space racism that they're like playing you know what sounds to be very uh what a western person would conceive of as japanese music for uh his wife to soothe her down is just a weird <laughs> yeah it just felt off in the moment yeah it, it made me feel a little cringy as well not to like put words in your mouth, but yeah, it felt cringy to me. And then it, it just made me think about how like Star Trek is always referencing things in the public domain, which makes me think that like where we're headed currently with copyright is actually part of the like whatever <laughs> apocalypse that's going to happen that like later, you know, uh, evolves into the Federation society where they just don't know about anything that was copyrighted. <laughs> There's... Uh, how much do I want to like? Because no, I don't. You haven't seen Picard season two, but oh, I don't. I, I mean, I personally don't care about spoilers. So, so there is like because like it's there's the new there's new showrunners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a bit of like a soft reboot, but like in in some of the interviews, they've been talking about um some of the lore and like you know as as you've probably seen in, in the promos for season two of picard they go back in time basically to like contemporary it's like 2024 i think just so they can you know kind of have a little bit further ahead but basically you know it's like when voyager went back to la in 96 mm-hmm. same sort of vibe and they're like 
oh, well, we thought about do we reference the eugenics wars or, or do we not and con and all of that stuff because boxes it happens in the 1990s and their their getaway you know possible scenario was once world war three happens anything that's like a mod like modern to our time electronic record would have been fried so like you say it got lost in the copyright stuff so spock thinks it's the 90s because that's their best guess but really it's like you know the 2030s or something like that so it's your common and copyright just kind of made me think of it i will probably cut this out because it's a diatribe can't wait for those eugenics wars to happen (laughs) <laughs> the the only thing that did survive was Magic Carpet Ride, which... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like one... I like hope it's like one cassette tape of that only. Like not like the song existing. Like it only is in Montana. Like it doesn't exist. Like New Jersey... A New Jersey person might not know about it. <laughs> like isn't Zephram Cochran technically like a Gen Z? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> like, anyways. <laughs> or at least that's what they say on the internet. Um, I loved the, like, creepy sci-fi vibes in this episode. Specifically the, like, prisoner intake scene. It, like, it was very alarming. And that's the scene, obviously, where, like, it's very unsexy because his shirt's, like, forced off. Like, it's not like he's taking his shirt off. If he takes his shirt off himself, then he can be sexy. If someone else is doing it against his will, not sexy. Um, in case you were uh, needed a <laughs> definition on that. Um, but also, even though this wasn't as, like, creepy, it kind of reminded me of, like, for some reason I was thinking of Thor Ragnarok when, like, he gets, I forget what the name of that place is, where... Um, Zakar. Zakar, thank you. Where he, like, goes, he's, like, in that chair, but it, like, moves like through in a like in a Willy Wonka kind of way, um, mm-hmm. and it just like is not that, but for some reason that's where my brain went. Um, uh, my brain yeah. went to uh, the chain of command from TNG because mm-hmm. I wanted Miles to be like, "There's one light." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed that they there was they uh, they like had that arm that light on that arm like moving. Because, like, it, it didn't really necessarily, add, like, it was just a nice touch to make it feel, I don't know, more more visually interesting when, like, right. it could have just been up there the whole time. But just, like, having it moving, like, made it even more disorienting. Um, but that, that sequence reminded me very much of that uh, TNG two-parter in a good way. Oh, totally. Totally. And and this is the second time we've seen, like, Cardassia Prime at first being, you know, introduced and us getting allusions to it in, in Chain of Command Parts 1 and 2. Um, and I think, like, if we can just, I'll just jump ahead a little bit in the uh, notes because I, I think it makes sense to, to talk about it here. But, like, Colm in those scenes holds holds his own with Patrick Stewart and the equivalent version of his scenes. Um, as being a Cardassian prisoner in, in Chain of Command, um, parts one and two. And it just goes to show, like, that, like, Calm is in that Patrick Stewart caliber caliber of, like, actor that wasn't given the same opportunities because he was the transporter chief on on TNG. So it's it's nice to see Calm get, get Star Trek giving Calm this kind of meteor stuff like that to work with that they would have given to a, a Patrick Stewart. Totally agree. Um, I was thinking when watching this how it wouldn't be nice to live in a would not be nice to live in a society where you have to give the government your molar at age 10 like also seeming like an ancient 
idea of way of like how to track someone ancient from like the star trek future i don't mean ancient from like 2022 uh, way of like <laughs> tracking someone like in a dna kind of way or like oh, we'll just take their tooth like i feel like in the 24th century there would be some other more advanced way yeah and and because they do some dna sequencing at, at the end of the episode <clears throat> it it made me think that like the, it's not that the Cardassians are backward, but it's like they're choosing to do this because it's as much about control and subjugation right. and fear as it is about like the methodology. Like right. it's a brutal way, an invasive way to do it. And like having that missing molar in your mouth is like a reminder all the time yeah. that like you it's are a, under yeah. their thumb. It's also just an easy way to identify that the like that one dude throughout the episode is actually Cardassian you know I know they did it because if they're just scanning you there there's not something taken away from your body but if your molar's missing they could be like all right well maybe he is Cardassian um I enjoy how Odo offered his non-existent molar (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) like his non-existent ethics oh Odo not that he has them it just again this episode I need to just get over my why does Odo get a pass feelings, but anyways. Um, I was really here for Julian being Miles's ride or die. Like, there's that scene where Kira and Bashir have the debate regarding O'Brien's guilt or innocence, and it just reminded me of real life. Whenever someone's accused of a crime, it, like, gets discussed in public debate. <laughs> you know, people who have nothing to do with it and no information past what the news is telling them or like, I think he did it. I think he didn't do it. Blah, blah, blah. Like that just felt really real, but it was interesting seeing it amongst people who knew, who know Miles. But I just really loved that Kira being herself and not trusting anyone. Although I feel like regardless of not trusting anyone, why would Kira choose to believe whatever the Cardassians were saying? That felt a little weird to me. Like, you'd think she would just, like, be against whatever they were saying. And I did, like, Bash- uh, Bashir just being, like, my bestie would not do this. Like, I know for a fact. I know it in my heart. And just Julian, I just love their friendship so much. Yeah, I also enjoyed Cisco's take where it was like, okay, we all know that he didn't do it. Let's figure out how we can prove that. Like, yeah. Um, you know, Julian was quicker to come to his defense on a personal basis um you know but i like how pretty much everybody was was on board with like we don't we don't think that you know o'brien is secretly a mckee sympathizer to the point of stealing weapons from deep space nine uh, under the guise of a vacation that he (laughs) clearly needs (laughs) i still felt like kira was like a little less convinced at the beginning well it's because like She's also sympathetic to the Maquis and, like, is Miles ride or die in the, like, all Cardassians are bastards sort of, like, category. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I guess I guess, Kira's yeah. Like, maybe Kira's like, well, I've thought about giving weapons to the Maquis. Maybe, <laughs> right. maybe Miles beat me to the punch, you know? Uh, Ryan, did you ever see the What We Left Behind Deep Space Nine documentary? Uh, I have not, but I should watch it. Yeah, so there's a really funny scene from that documentary where they talk about um, Avery Brooks directing this episode, and I found a little write-up about it on uh, Memory Alpha, so I'm just going to read that because it's it 
was really funny to me. So BC Cameron is, I think they were like first assistant or something on this. Um, so this is what it, this is. Yeah, what, I think they're the first AD. Yeah. Okay. Like AD. And so BC Cameron's difficulty with Avery Brooks's directing came to a head while they were working on one particular scene. So this is BC Cameron, um, who I'm quoting. He called me aside in Quark's bar, Cameron remembered. It was pitch black in there because we weren't shooting in there. It was dark. And I went in and I said, I want you to make sure I get what I need. And I said, oh, wait, sorry. It was dark. And I went in and he said, I want you to make sure I get what you need. And I said, it's kind of difficult sometimes because I come to ask you questions and then you act like you don't want to tell me things or that I'm bothering you. And he, be, being um, Avery Brooks, said, I guess you don't understand my humor. And I said, to be honest with you, sir, I'm not sure you have one. <laughs> and he kind of reared back his shoulders, turned around. A little half grin came on his face and he said, OK, what is it you need to know? And I said, I'd like you to know when you have a scene in your mind to tell us what you want. And then Avery said, come with me. And Brooks proceeded to tell Cameron the precise camera moves he wanted and the blocking he wanted. And they were like, thank you. That's exactly what we want. So I don't know. I I can't imagine why he was like trying to hold it back. But I'm glad that they had that conversation where because as a director, you need to be able to, you know, direct people. You're not directing just yeah. the actors. Yeah, and I, I don't know how much Avery Brooks directed before Bef- this episode yeah, and other right. things that he worked on, but I know some uh, directors who lack experience um, get nervous, and I've heard I've read a lot of accounts from especially female directors where right. the crew will like second guess them, and so they're like, oh, I just stopped right. telling them telling them anything until like we needed to do it because that gave them right. less time to like argue with me about it and like make it a thing when right. we just need to that's get that's fair that makes that seems so it like could, it would be a de- like a understandable reason to not give all you know give all your cards away or whatever uh but but i, I like that story because yeah i just it's I, I also don't know avery book's personality outside of cisco so in my head right. it's just like that totally fits they with talk about it act. a little bit on like, i think he's a pretty serious dude yeah like, yeah. yeah like okay. they talk about it a little bit in the documentary um actually i might be able i don't remember if it was on my um, movies anywhere but if it is i'll lend it to you oh awesome but yeah i've seen the documentary twice now and both times i watched i was hysterical when they were describing that that is interaction so how did we feel about the uh the Cardassian kind of trial itself, or basically reality, air quotes, reality courtroom drama. It's like Judge Judy with high stakes. <laughs> That's the Cardassian legal system. Well, I, I was, I ended up doing a little bit of like Wikipedia research around what constitutes a kangaroo court and what constitutes a show trial. And I think Cardassian justice is a little bit more on the end of the show trial where Can you, everything is Can you tell me the difference? because I don't actually know. Sure. Um, so a, a kangaroo court is usually more of an ad hoc uh, okay. thing, and, and the outcome may be predetermined, but it's sort of less formal, and it's more, um, you know, more based on, like, there's no procedure behind it. It's, very, it's, it's more informal, I guess. Okay. Whereas a show trial can be very formalized, but all the, all the outcomes are predetermined. Um, okay. 
And so I think Cardassian justice is more in the show trial vein because they hide all of that behind their, well, this is our culture's form of jurisprudence and you have to respect that. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't make any sense. Like it's clearly yeah. designed to serve the state and the state only, um, you know, and what the, um, uh, the conservator, you know, like his whole speech to Miles about how like, well, like your death is an honorable death because it'll help Cardassians sleep at night knowing that like crimes right. are being committed. And it's like, all right, you're so like brainwashed about this, that like that's the way that you have to like think about it, either to allow yourself to be OK with it morally or because you really are just a total, just a tool of the state. At that point. <laughs> right. It was just interesting to me how. They just like they described it as basically as entertainment. Like this trial is going to make people feel good about their their own lives or feel good about going out on the street. And it just I don't think that's that dissimilar from our world, um, in the sense yeah. that you know they play things in the media and it's what I was saying before. Everyone will debate. You know they did it. They didn't do it. And it's. I don't know, people watch trials all the time. So it just feels like it's <clears throat> it's to coerce the people into feeling a certain way. And specifically... Well, it's because Cardassians, like... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, specifically in this episode, it reminded me of that book that Julian and Garrick were debating. I don't remember what episode we were watching. Oh, The Never-Ending Sacrifice? Yeah, and how, like, the whole point was that, like, you're sacrificing your, your family after ge- generation after generation is sacrificing themselves for the for the state. And it's just this idea that this trial is going to make the Cardassians, like, continue to fall in line. It just feels all very related. Sorry, what were you saying? Well, no, to- no, I was going to, I was totally, like, agreeing with you. And, like... It goes back to, like, I think might have been, Ryan, what you were saying before about, like, Cardassians valuing order over, you know, kind of individual freedoms and things like that. And Andrew Robinson, who plays Garrick, has likened in pre-interviews and things like that the the Cardassian brain to the reptilian portion of the human brains. And Robinson is quoted as, um, you know, as part of those parts of the brain that know the boundaries and how to take care of itself so that the species survives. Um, coming out at this too is like Cardassians have a philosophy, like as Ryan, you're talking about where it places order above both freedoms and equality, which kind of results into this quasi Orwellian kind of fascist for the good of the state. Um, society that they have and even the herman zimmerman who was the production designer leaned heavily into 1984 as kind of his reference point for designing cardassia prime and you know the trial the the redress of the hollow suite set to be the the courtroom and we have an an kovat who's the basically lawyer type person um when he's justifying the legal system to miles and all these things that we're talking about kovat says whatever you've done whatever the charges against you none of that really matters in the long run the trial is to demonstrate the futility of behavior contrary to good order so it's very much for the greater good. Like, right? Like, it's yep. that above all. And it's it's very much like, I mean, it's it's V for Vendetta, right? It's it's fascism. And the greater it's good like has nothing right. to do yeah. with, with Miles. And the greater good is 
that Cardassian for in the, his mind is the Cardassians are following the state and doing what they and yeah. falling in line and and I, I like the way that that's expressed because it's you know I think if you especially at least in America if you walked up to a bunch of random people and you're like is it more important that you know the uh occasionally a guilty person goes free or that all criminals are punished and I bet you you would get at least 50% of people saying oh it's better if all criminals are punished and like so I, I think it, it's good that it plays into the sort of soft ver- softer version <laughs> I'm using that in, in quotes of author authoritarian a thought yeah authoritarian wait author how do I even say that word authoritarianism uh, yeah I don't, I don't know why my my mouth just decided it couldn't it couldn't handle that. Um, <laughs> it's all good. It's just so upsetting uh, to you the concept that you were like I can't even say the word. <laughs> uh, so I I like that it plays into plays into that and doesn't make it seem as recognizably fascist the way that fascism is often expressed in uh, in media where you know we think of you know, the insignias and the appeals to order and the like put subjugation putting down of people. But the way that uh, this lawyer sort of spins it around as well, like, the, you know, like as this is how somebody living in that society would justify it um, as like, you know, it, it is all for this sort of the, this greater good and everything. I just found that a really smart and interesting way to play that. And the fact that he is not at all involved with this larger conspiracy that the Cardassians are trying to pull right, to justify like, the actions they want to take yeah. against Suniki is, I also think is really one of the best things about this episode in my mind. That the lawyers like doesn't know what's going on. Like he just believes mm-hmm. whatever his government is telling him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. The whole like, the whole like in adding to that, how the Cardassians invite the family members so that everyone can watch them weeping like, they won't even tell Miles what he's being charged with because none of that, none of that matters. It's only just to get the rest of the Cardassia to stay in line. You can't even bring in new evidence. Like, it's all wild. Even, like, in our, I mean, I'm not, like, a lawyer and my knowledge of courtrooms or um, television programs, like, the good fight, <laughs> but, like, even to get to bring in new evidence like it's not like easy there's so many procedures like you have to go loopholes you have to go through not loopholes like but there's so many procedures and checks and that you have to go through so like yes like this Cardassian um trial you can't bring in new evidence but like it's not like it's easy to do that in our courts either (laughs) Well, true. It's just that we have like discovery periods and they're not like, okay, you're under arrest, your trial's in two days and your exec- your execution is the day after that. No, um, I get it. But I do felt like parts of it were like a little jab at our like justice mm. system. <laughs> like the, at least the, as entertainment part of it. And the, like, right. And I, I do like that they reference at least once that like, this is already the longest trial in Cardassian history. <laughs> right. You know, it was supposed to be this like, I mean, wouldn't it be shot. more entertaining the longer it goes on anyway? Like they should, they should want that. But it's, it's not the drama because they know like the ending. It, it's like, it's like when you rewatch, well, 
okay. It's like when I rewatch Star Trek because I've seen it before and like it's comforting because I know it's going to happen or like watching a police procedural um, on CBS or whatever. It's like you know the format, you know what it's going to be, like you know that they're going to solve the mystery in their tight 45 minutes with commercials or whatever, Mm -hmm. maybe 55 and it's like calming and it's relaxing and it's it reinsure it's reassuring and it reinsures your like worldview whether you're watching the CBS or NBC procedural or you're watching Star Trek, right? Right. And like that's what these trials within Cardassian society function as. So it's like <laughs> it's there's there's this big thing right now or not that big thing, but like we're almost done season fourteen of rupaul's drag race and there have been several episodes this week where a contestant like hasn't been eliminated and it's like been memed to death and like you know whatever because people are supposed to get eliminated it's a reality competition and so it's like when you do things that like buck that expectation um you're gonna get probably like a negative reaction so like the fans at home are fans air quotes are like this episode's going on come on we we need to get our 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 drag queens eliminated so we can get a winner it's like the same sort of mentality i would imagine on (laughs) cardassia i just thought of this episode of columbo that i watched recently because i haven't watched that much columbo but like the ones i have like you literally like like at least one or two of them you saw the murder happen and then the trick is to watch Columbo figure it out so I do feel like obviously you know Columbo's gonna figure it out um so it does feel really similar in that you know you know what happened or at least you were told what happened and then you just watch like the story of it unfold like to get to that point and I just and that's kind of how this episode functions yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not not entertaining, but it's not. Ent- but like, it's good when it's fiction. And obviously, Deep Space Nine is fiction. But I'm thinking like within the world, you know, this must have. Re- uh, you know, it's creepy. Right. It, like if that totally. were to be real. I mean, yeah. Right, because because in this, it's it's very much state propaganda. Um, <clears throat> but I like how this this episode is sort of Columbo ish, and that like we see. Um, you know, the, the uh, O'Brien's former crewmate, you know, with his voice recording. Yeah, And, like, we exactly. have the pieces of everything, you know. The way Brooke shoots that scene with him in the shadows in the teaser is just, like, so good. Yeah, I really like that a lot. It looks really, it looks great. And That's like, actually the like part of the episode already... I remembered the most. <laughs> that and, the re- and like, the, the recorder. Um, but, you know, there was a point during the episode... Uh, the first time I watched it for this recording where I was like, how are they going to write themselves out of this corner? <laughs> because <laughs> it feels like the Cardassians have this pretty locked down and, you know, o- sure. Odo was able to talk himself into being the, his O'Brien's other lawyer. <laughs> or what, there's I don't not even a lot remember of, like, what leeway. terminology they use. Nestor. Nestor. Yeah. That's my coworker's um, name. Like what? Uh, I I do like how Oda was like, well, as you remember, I did serve the Cardassians pretty loyally, and you guys were... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was really funny to me that they put the lines, being accused of a crime is not a disgrace, Chief. Some of the great figures of history have shared the honor with you into Odo's mouth. Like, and on one like, hand... I I know you're a shapeshifter, but like, come on. <laughs> 
on one hand, I was like, okay, yes, this is a nice sentiment because obviously it, it shows how laws are not necessarily just um, and they're not related because just because a person, you know, with an agenda made a law and like then, you know, that doesn't mean make it good or bad. And it just was really like I know they're trying to give him more nuance, but I I like kind of like laughed at it because of our all of our conversations we've had um, about Odo. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he really that line like I think it's well written and everything. And um, Renee uh, Azurus, I think that's how you say his name. Um, like he delivers it really well, but I was like, right. this does not feel like an Odo line because. It's very, like, Odo to me is 100% like lawful neutral. Like, whatever yeah. the law is, it's black and white. <clears throat> Criminals are bad. People who don't break the law are good. The, what the law is almost doesn't matter. Um, and so, like, it just it felt really out of character for right. the Odo I, I know. Yeah, it almost sound, feels like something Cisco would say more than Odo. But I also feel mm-hmm. like it's something that O'Brien would think to someone else, like, to, would, like, say to someone else also. Like, O'Brien seems like the kind of person that would, like, you know, he doesn't, I don't think he always knows how to talk to people. But, like, he's a good guy, and I think he would give good advice. But he doesn't seem like the type of person that would, like, take his same good advice for himself. Mm-hmm. I think, I personally think that, <clears throat> sorry, that O'Brien is, like, more concerned about doing what's right than doing what's like the rules and i like he he's a character that to me has he knows where he stands on most things like he's decisive and so it just seems like he would be someone that would be like yeah all these these are great these great people that were fighting for whoever i just have very like positive feelings about him and there's an episode like that comes up eventually where I'm where we're like I like feel that even more I will not spoil that but um yeah yeah and I, I think what's frustrating for Miles in this situation is he's like look if I had made a choice that I thought was the right thing and I was being put to death for it I would have no problem with that like but the fact that this is for something that I didn't even do and they're not even telling me what it's for like he's Right. He's being thrown into a situation where they're not even giving him the information. And he's like, I can't even be a martyr if I don't know what I'm being martyred right, for. Right, right, right. I also like that there's that one scene where like Odo keeps, Odo keeps interrupting this trial, which he's supposedly not supposed to be doing. But he says this one line, actually, there wasn't even a crime against Cardassia. This ish happened on Deep Space Nine. What are we doing here? Obviously, that's a paraphrase. But, um felt like that line felt kind of awkward to me like that seems like something that you would think like immediately upon this all happening so it just felt like another like they needed to like fill another minute of dialogue and they just threw that line in there I don't know it felt awkward to me it it sounded to me like somebody in the writing staff decided that there was a plot hole that needed to be filled because (laughs) I mean I I think you know at where they were like, wait, why is why are the Cardassians trying Miles when like they really didn't have anything to do with what was happening? But like, right. the the larger grander story is that like the Cardassians are sort of moving these wheels behind the scenes, and like, you know, because having read the description, I was like, oh, I guess Miles like goes into the demil- isn't like on the wrong side of the 
demilitarized zone or whatever right. and like gets caught up in it but um yeah and because the crime they're charging for him is like basically like sedition but i'm like can right. you really be seditious if you're not a subject like if you're not a part of that society can you be sedition like can you commit right. sedition? right and like they're just gonna give him the death penalty <laughs> of course they are it's just cleaner that way <laughs> I'm kind of macabre, and I'm like, what what method of execution? <laughs> no, I like use? kind of am curious also. Um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine because it's they're... like I, I imagine it's pu- it's very public, and it's not so gross that they that you wouldn't be able to watch it because they they want you to watch it. So is it like a like is there like a Cardassian guillotine? It could be a guillotine, but I, I feel like it's I was probably more it'd be like a, a firing squad. Or something. One of the suicide boosts, except it's not suicide from Futurama. <laughs> they just walk into an incinerator or something. <laughs> okay, well this got really dark. Um, I mean, so it turns out that, <laughs> of course. I mean, I took us there. Now let us let us let us lead lead. lead, lead I wasn't upset about it. I um, I was like yeah, thinking it as well. So. So it's it's found out during the investigations that the former colleague, former crew member from the Rutledge Boone, that stole Miles' voice and actually, you know, we think might be a mucky agent is, as we've talked about, is a Cardassian in disguise who replaced this guy eight years ago. I just and, laughed. Um, like, imagine it was just like a random human that happened to like have like a cavity and needed that molar removed and it wasn't actually <laughs> well they do some other like genetic no i'm just kidding it'd just right. be really funny to be like yeah you could here are my dental records <laughs> <laughs> sorry i guess my question is what did what did you all think about the the very x-files very um, watergate era deep throat scene with the maquis and sick bay loved it loved it it was ridiculous. Uh, I was super happy for Julian because, you know, he loves being able to getting sucked into spy stories and conspiracies. Oh, totally. yep. And I was like, this is his dream. Like, he doesn't even I... get mad about it. Like, no, I like... When the... Sorry. <laughs> like, when the lights come on, like, he's just elated that this this all happened. Um, yeah, I... You know, and I think it shows the... Ma- it suggests that the Maquis the Maqui are really organized and, like, really powerful. I picture Julian like describing it in detail at his next lunch with Garrick. <laughs> like he'd be writing in his journal, like "Dear Diary, it finally happened." <laughs> <laughs> I was actually I couldn't remember or not, but obviously like he wasn't. I couldn't remember if um, Garrick appeared in this episode because this feels like one he would maybe like have appeared in he didn't appear in the maquis episode like the double because remember we kept saying i think during the maquis ones he didn't he wasn't in there either so it was always just weird to have cardassian stuff happening without garrick garrick's not in that many episodes like all together i think i'm gonna look because i think i think i think garrick would say that if the obsidian order was involved that this trial would have gone off without a hitch Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Garrick is in 37 of 176 episodes of Deep Space Nine. And it's definitely more in the back half. Yes. Right? Yes. Definitely. Yeah. But I like 
feel like he's in more um i just need everyone to okay so i need to read the you know when you google something and it says people also ask yeah what happened to garrick in ds9 and then followed by is garrick not is garrick queer is garrick a queer (laughs) so i'm like (laughs) you add that a and it's like it changes changes it for me but I, I I just really enjoy uh, like like I said toward the beginning of the episode and a lot of the stuff that you guys talked about at least on the first part of the McKee episodes like I I just really like this as a very interesting way to add different layers of morality and political interactions into this universe. Right. Um, yeah. To sort of have this like because ongoing... the Maquis are sympathetic in many ways. I think. They are, and it's really interesting to have a, like a non-state-sponsored group, like yeah, just in as an ongoing concern. Yep. If only the show that they were created for had like you know stuck with it past five episodes in the first season, it would <laughs> would have been interesting. Anyways, we're not a Voyager podcast though, so. <sighs> mm. I think Voyager is the Trek show I have most mixed feelings on. I really liked what I I've watched, been... but it was like it got very repetitive. And like in fairness, like so does TNG at times. Like I don't know. I need to like it's been a while since I like rewatched Voyager. I think I like started a couple years ago and then put it down. I should like I should like go back to it. Maybe that's what I'll do. If if I don't jive with Strange New Worlds, maybe I'll go back to to Voyager. Voyager feels like a very specific kind of TNG episode. Like I think I like I think I like the characters in Voyager more than I liked any of the plots. Fair. I, I think that's fair. yeah, I think that's totally fair. Uh it's got some high highs, but it's got some real Like I genuinely really like all of the characters. So that Cardassian judge lady, I guess she was just like involved. <laughs> <laughs> or was like yeah like at a high enough level that like when she, she knew like, who she boone obviously was. knew who boone was yeah. to recognize him to then like you know deus mm-hmm. ex the plot or what or away or whatever um i guess just a little bit on i can't remember her name so i'm just gonna call her judge, fascist judge judy yeah, um, that's fair. um i did appreciate like the casting of the judges being like a female Cardassian. Mm-hmm. Cause I, and I don't They're think so this was necessary. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of, that's what I'm kind of like, no, you I'm joke, but that's kind of what no, I'm leading up to. And I don't know how like intentional this was on, on Star Trek's part, but let me preface my next statement by saying, yes, representation matters you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't, I, I agree that full stop period, end of sentence, new thought, but it also then demonstrates how folks with power and privilege, regardless of gender expression, um, can also be tools of fascism and imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the, yay, we need more women drone, drone pilots. Right. It's like, no, we need no drone pilots. Right. It's so like, like, yay, like, Margaret again, I don't Thatcher think... was a lady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's recording this the week on the anniversary of her death. Rest in piss. Um, but yeah, like, again, I don't know how intentional the episode is trying to do that, but that was like one of my, right. my main kind of like, nice takeaways of that episode right it's right. i don't know i've been thinking a lot about imperial feminism lately as i've been following along with the my brother my captain my 
podcast podcast <laughs> as, uh, a lord of the rings uh retrospective um if, if folks are into that i highly recommend it you you check it out but uh it's something that they talk about a lot and how on lord of the rings in the films specifically there's allowed to be this expression of like tender masculinity but like the two and a half female characters <laughs> in lord of the rings as adapted in the films have this kind of like imperial feminism kind of their their agency is always tied to violence whereas like the men are allowed to like have this tenderness with each other that the female characters aren't aren't given to each other so yeah definitely check out that podcast if lord of the rings is your shit <laughs> i know i brought up the good fight earlier but i think i rewatched. i like had not seen that i had watched the good wife except for the last season and i was going to um catch up and then all that information came out in the news about Chris Noth and I was like I do not need to watch the last episode the last season of The Good Wife so I just skipped ahead to The Good Fight and um it was funny because I think I don't this is like either last season or the season before there was this whole storyline where if like the judges in the show would get like a note on their desk saying like memo 618 which is like also very much related to like it was like a memo that it was the memo that was justified that like was used to justify like Japanese internment camps um the bush torture memos like they this is like a real concept that was that happened so in the show the good fight if you saw that on your desk as a judge They'd, like, ruin your life if you didn't vote, like, again, if you didn't, like, argue or you didn't, like, find the case in a certain way because it wasn't, like, you know, or, like, emotion. Obviously, you can't, like, I would, they would, didn't do that for the jury, but, like, they would do it or if you have to, like, extend something or decide whether to even hear a case. Anyway, so the way that, like, they showed up with this boon guy and the, and the Judge Judy was, like leniency like a word she probably never said in her entire life it was just very much reminded me of the good fight and how they portrayed that memo 618 like boone was the memo 618 i was really curious as to how they got him to that courtroom (laughs) like how did they know where on cardassian prime the court was and they got they called up up captain (laughs) sulu and told him it's at Camp Kittimer, and then they showed up. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the ending of this episode, it's like, Ryan, I think you said earlier, it's like, how are they going to write themselves out of this? And yeah. just like, do, 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 it's all fine now. Yep. All right, see you next week. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. The ending was not yeah, the mean, strongest part of the episode. <laughs> I agree. And, you know, I, I like this episode more when it was about a deep fake of, Miles's voice than it was about. Oh, there's a surgically a person surgically altered to look like a different race. Yeah. <laughs> Which like, huh, that's a that's a thing we don't need to do anymore in Star Trek. <laughs> that is something I will mention later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all I mean, you know, these this kind of episode again because it is very much a procedural mystery kind of episode. It's going to end with that that like sudden reversal of fortune. Uh, or big reveal or whatever like it it's appropriate to the kind of episode as it is but the way that this plays out is just not particularly satisfying at the the very end yeah there's a there's another kind of legal drama 
episode of DS9. I think it's season... It might be season four. It might be early season five. I can't can't quite remember. Um, but it's it's more about, like, the trial. And it's more it's less of, like, a show trial. And more you get different testimony and the way they shoot and different things like that. I think it's a little bit more interesting for this type of type of episode um but yeah no i think this like i guess to kind of like offer my kind of concluding thoughts before we we move into the the regularly scheduled segments near the end and then i'll offer offer you to the opportunity to give your closing thoughts i i think this is a a solid like seven out of ten like again i think there's things i really like about it i think it's like an above average episode of the syndicated era of star trek it's in but only only just i don't know what about you ryan i'll throw to you first yeah i I agree with that assessment overall i think what makes it stand out is uh getting a a chance to shine and getting the spotlight for once um i think it's a really good use of his talents as an actor and i feel like as the episode goes on he gets less and less focus and that makes the episode Mm. less and less interesting Mm -hmm. Um, but I still think it's above average. If the if the ending were more satisfying, or somehow you know, uh, Calm was able to keep the spotlight the whole way through, I'd probably bump it up a little bit more. But seven out of ten feels right to me. I agree with. I know we don't normally give number ratings on the episodes, <laughs> Elise, but what are, what are your closing? I'm not going to give a number because I don't like. That's, that's... I hate rating things, but no. um, I agree with both of what you're saying, and I specifically with what Ryan said about how throughout the episode we see kind of like less calm and more of the conspiracy, and I would have enjoyed more of his acting. When he said, I do not concede, I was like, yeah, and I just felt like he was really wronged, and I was, um, it was, it was, he was really good when they let him, you know, be righteous. Yeah, it's always good when a character is justifiably able to be like, I do not recognize the authority of this court. <laughs> um, you know, and, and even some of the stuff during the, the earlier, more like the processing scenes where he's just like reciting his name and rank over and over. And it's just, there's a lot of little nice touches to his performance and sort of his arc through this. And I specifically didn't watch beyond this, but I am interested to after we're done recording to watch at least the next couple episodes and keep an eye to see if, if there is any sort of fallout in Colmini's performance from this, or if they just kind of like, Oh, and we're back. (laughs) Okay. Well, I don't know about you two, but we've been talking for about an hour and yeah, I've been secretly sipping some coffee, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling really thirsty and and a little dehydrated. So uh, at least who are you thirsting for this week on Deep Space Nine? You're you're probably dehydrated because you're drinking caffeine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For two seconds, we get like some Miles Keiko romance um, in between him putting his technical manuals away and right before he gets arrested. You know, and I said this earlier, normally a shirtless O'Brien would be at the top of my list. But when your clothing, as I said before, when your clothing is removed because you're a prisoner, it is not the same. Um, I do think that perhaps the Cardassian Judge Judy lady might make a good dom. So I have really so saying mixed that much feel- like Alexis from Paradise <laughs> was Doug's problematic, our guest Doug's yeah. problematic wood. Yeah. Uh, Cardassian Judge Judy is your problematic wood. Yeah, I kept looking at her lipstick color. <laughs> 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 if I'm being honest, yes. 
Ryan, what about you? Uh, for me, it's as I alluded to before. It's uh, Julian and just being a part of a conspiracy. Like just any any time Julian gets to experience something that he might have read in like a spy novel, uh, <laughs> I, I get pretty excited for him. Nice. And I I was not particularly actually thirsty, like Elise said. I'm just dehydrated from drinking my coffee. <laughs> um, moving on to the most Star Trek thing. I know we've, we've mentioned it a little bit before, but I think it's really the ending and how it gets kind of magically tied up in a, in a bow and we're off, you yep. know, to next week. What about you, Elise? It's similar. You know, the whole thing is, is figured out with a face-changing surgery. Like, it feels very Star Trek. As Ryan said, that's something we don't need to do anymore because it's been done so many times. But this is the first time it's been done to a Cardassian, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's, it's, I can't think of an example where it's been done well, where, like, that was, like, a satisfying storyline or was, like, interesting in any particular way. Spoilers if you're following along for the first time sipping ahead 30 seconds but there's an early season three episode where a character surgically altered and wakes up and it has to you know the the mystery of the episode is whether they've actually been who they thought they were were in deep cover i think that's a pretty good use of that that trope in star trek um i think it's second skin i think that's what it's called it's a, mm. a cure yeah episode. that's coming up soon-ish. i think that's a yeah, it's an early season three episode. I think that one's pretty good. And then I haven't, I haven't seen it in a long time, but like I remember it being good. Was it Enemy Within? Is that the one where like the Tel Shiar like recruits um, Troy and she's like a Romulan, like a secret Romulan or something like that? I don't remember. It's been a while. Yeah, it's not. It's not ringing a bell, but that's <clears throat> that's more about my memory issues than. <laughs> um, but I, I'm happy to take your word for it, Matt, that, that it can be done well. It just here it felt like, oh, like this again. <laughs> like, um, I will say for my most Star Trek thing, uh, it's that someone's leave gets ruined. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Or like they don't get to go on their leave. Although I was glad, you know, off screen, of course, they did get to go on their leave eventually. Yeah, I, I was definitely glad that Miles and Keiko got their time away and i'm especially glad that keiko got it with miles not having being able to bring any technical manuals with him. <laughs> i just thought of something that i didn't mention earlier do you think it's interesting that they had miles at the beginning of the episode say they should have brought molly because i feel like in other shows they would have the woman saying that kind of line interesting question yeah, yeah. no like yeah no i, don't I just know. thought it was I just different than what you would find on a different program at the same time like around the same time this aired they would have definitely had like the woman missing the children like that is a definite like thing that trope that happens yeah it, it didn't strike me when it happened but it is interesting now that you mentioned it and i i i also did like uh or at least thought that kate was lying about how like the family that's watching her probably sees more of uh, she sees more of them than she does of the O'Briens. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and at first I was like, oh, that's a convenient way to, like, I guess it's really just a convenient way not to have to bring that child actor into the episode. Right. <laughs> or have her be like a five-year-old witness to her father. Yeah, being she doesn't need, Molly doesn't need to get traumatized. <laughs> well, this is also true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming. This has been this has been a blast. Please, please come back anytime. Thank you both for having me. I always enjoy uh, talking about any subject with you guys, but especially Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, I'll be, I have a, I have one or two season three episodes I have in mind that I, I want to come on with that I'll be pitching you guys very shortly. Cool. Nice. Yeah, let us know, definitely. And in the meantime, where can folks find more of you on the internet? Sure. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd and Instagram uh, at Silber, whatever. That's with a B. Uh, and you can also find my writing uh, on the on moviejohn.com and in the pages of our physical quarterly zine. Uh, so you can look, up, look that up at moviejohn.com. Uh, we have new posts pretty much every day, Monday through Friday. Awesome. Elise, what about you? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi, E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-E-N-D-I. And you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as well at at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can also, as we mentioned earlier, catch me talking about Mad Men on my Mad Men podcast, Still Great Bob. And at the time of this recording, it is just coming out, so it's probably been out a couple weeks by the time you're listening to this. I was recently on the Monkey Off My Backlog podcast, which folks will remember has Tessa on it from our recent two-parter on the Maquis, talking with Tessa and Sam about Hitchcock. I cannot wait to listen to it. Yeah, I think it drops tomorrow at the time of this recording. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, you can also catch Elise and I together on Twitter and Instagram at PodRace. And you can email us at PodRace at gmail.com. Please remember to rate and review us on the podcasting system of your choice. And thank you again to DJ Empirical for our interstellar theme song. And until next time, computer and program. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>